John 6, this is where we've been at now for a number of weeks. Uh, again, John 6 was, was something that is, it really captures one of, the, one of the great exchanges that occurred between Jesus and a group of people. It, it contains what's often referred to by theologians and commentators as the, the discourse, the bread of life discourse. And that's the teaching that Jesus gave around this idea, this concept of the bread of life. Now, again, just because I don't want to assume every, everybody is familiar with all the context of what we're about to look at, because it contains one of the most radical, radical exchanges recorded that Jesus says in all the Gospels. And again, the, the chapter opens up with Jesus doing one of his uh, most memorable miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the bread and the fish, and the, this amazing moment when the masses were fed and the multitudes just begin to just uh, clamor that he was more than simply a, a teacher. The talk was that he was the prophet, uh, the promised one, the Messiah. And in fact, in the earlier in the chapter, it says that they got so excited about who Jesus was and what he could do and his power that they were so caught up in the miracle that what they, they said is they wanted to make him king. And it says they, would have, they wanted to make him, by, make him king by force. So they wanted to force him to be king. And Jesus did not cooperate. He removed himself. He extricated himself as quickly as possible from the, the crowd that was just getting caught up in the euphoria of the miracle. And they wanted him to perform some more. And he pulled back because he says, you're missing the larger picture of what I've come to do. It's not about what you think. And he pulled away. And it says that he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And word got back that he, where he was and the crowds found him again. That's when this discussion occurs. They say to him, you know, where have you been? We've been looking all over for you. And, and Jesus says, you know what? You're looking for me, he implies, but for the wrong reasons. He goes, labor, I want you to labor for the food that uh, will, not, will not pass away. Don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food that leads to everlasting life. And they said, what are you talking about, labor? What do you want us to do? And he says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to believe. I want you to believe. What do you want us to believe? I want you to believe that I am the true bread of heaven. I, I am the bread of life. And that's when he makes his first of his many I am declarations, which immediately connect all the way back to wherein Israel's greatest deliverer, Moses, was before God at the burning bush. And Moses says, what is your name? And God says, I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he means even more than what he says. And he connects at a very deep level with their historical perception of what a great deliverer was. And when he makes that statement, they are caught off guard. And they were not necessarily willing uh, to embrace him with the same enthusiasm that they were willing to embrace the miracles that he was doing. And, they, and he senses their reluctance. He senses the fact that they were less than impressed with that statement. And you know what he says? He says, you know what? He says, it, 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 even if you don't receive what I've just said, listen, none of you can come anyway unless the Father draws him. In fact, that's that uh, 44th verse there. You can see it. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And so there, he's basically then Jesus says that there's a part of this that only God can do. The Father can only draw you. So I'm not going to worry about whether or not you, you receive what I'm saying or not. If, and then he goes on to say, but however, look at 45th verse, however, there is something that you get to decide. You get to decide how responsive you're going to be. So Jesus immediately sets in motion the fact that there is both, it's a both and issue. It's both God drawing us and also a choice that we make to be responsive. Look what he says. He says, and it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God, 
Everyone who, look at this word, who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Listening and learning. The two are not always synonymous. They don't always go together. We can listen and not learn. Listening doesn't, doesn't automatically mean we've learned something. Learning always has in mind something of a, a practice, an application, an activation of what we learn or what we've been listening to. And Jesus is saying, you know what, and he's getting at the core of what it means to be a, fo a follower of his. He's saying at, at its core, this is about the learning life. This is about growing in your understanding. This is not just about appreciating things from afar. It's about learning how to apply them into the everydayness of life. It has to do with learning and growing and expanding and integrating. It has to do with being an apprentice. I mean, think about it. A disciple is simply a committed follower. That's what he meant. Are you a true learner? Are you going to um, uh, be a practitioner, not just a theorist? I mean, there's a difference, he's saying. He's going, look, you, you, it's not just about, about you know, appreciating what I'm doing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's about engaging it and letting it activate itself in your life. It's literally, he says, it's not just about enjoying a temporal meal. It's about letting something inside of you that, that is a true change agent that will dynamically affect you. And that's what he's saying. The true bread of heaven changes everything at a far more profound level. So he's getting at something. He's trying to work with them on it. Now, having said, you know, I was thinking about this idea, though, of learner and how that really does apply to us. And I, reminded, I was reminded of a, a portion of Scripture that I had read. It was a verse or two that I had read when I was just beginning to follow the Lord as a young, young man. Uh, there was a passage that was particularly appealing to me. And again, the connection has to do with this idea of what Jesus said about being a learner, not just a listener. And in Timothy, Paul wrote these words. And uh, he, he basically said in, this, in these words, he says, don't let anybody despise your youth. These, teach these things and insist, what he says, and insist that everybody learns them. Learns them. He says, and don't, don't, let, don't think, let anyone think less of you because you're young, he says. Don't do that. Don't, don't pull back. He says, but instead be an example to all believers. Now think about that. Just stop right there and look at, the, just look at this for a moment. What he's saying is, I want you to be a true learner and I want you, don't, don't allow your youthfulness to be an excuse for settling for something less than the example that God wants you to be. Don't pull back on being that example that God's called you to be. By the way, that, that applies to all of us, no matter where we are, no matter how old we are. But in Timothy's case, he was feeling intimidated by the, his ministry environment, by the fact that there were a lot of older people. Some of them knew more than him. At least he felt they did. He felt like really uh, intimidated by that process. You know, and, some, and Paul's saying, look, do not, you need to be an example. Don't let your youth be an excuse to pull back from being the example that God's called you to be. You are to be a learner. You are to be a model of what learning looks like. And then look what he does. He lists five things. Five things are noted there that remind us of what a true learner is. What are those five? You see them. First one, he says, it's going to show up. It's going to show up by, by what you say. He says it's going to show up but in, in, the, in, in what you say, in the words that come out of our mouth, in the, in the communication patterns that begin to characterize us, the way that we, we talk, the way that we interact, the way that we communicate, what we do when we're angry, what we say. Uh, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is power of life and death in the tongue. With the same mouth that praises God, the scripture says, we can, we can curse men. These things, brothers, he says, are not to be so among you. No, don't do that. 
He's talking about the quality of our speech patterns. We're not talking, and I'm not talking about Christian jargon. I'm not talking about saying that knowing the right words and how to pray properly exactly. That's not what we're talking. What we're talking about is what begins to characterize us. What what becomes our word? The words that that represent our life. Are we learning? Are we growing? Are we getting more to to represent the heart of the Lord with with our communication patterns? These things, where we, where, when we're working, when we're, but sometimes by what we don't say. Um, sometimes by dropping, by, refuse, by not allowing ourselves to fall back into patterns of our old life. But we are seeking to fill our lives with good words. Not in the, what does he say? In the way in which you talk, in the way in which you communicate, in what you say, in what, in what you what, in how you live, what we do, how we, how we engage people, how we do our our, live our life out. He, what I love about this, he's saying, this is not just about believing the right things. That's important. But it's designed to be implemented into the everydayness of our lives. Jesus is saying it needs to show up. It's not just listening. It's engaging. It's active. It's engagement. And he says it's going to show up, Paul says, in, in what we say, in how we live, in our love, in our faith, in our purity, in the way in which we seek to approach and contend for, for purity in the eyes of God. These are counter, sometimes it's going to be countercultural. Sometimes it's going to rub against the grain of prevailing culture. What are we going to do there? One of the things I realize is it doesn't mean we're always going to get it all right. Anybody who's, who's seeking to try to be a real honest learner with the Lord is going to realize that they're going to be in some seasons where it is intensely difficult um, because we are actually striving to try to honor God and do what he wants us to do and to be like him. And, and, and we're contending. Listen, what it is is sometimes when we contend for things, we, we will struggle. Uh, to, we, but, but this is what he's saying is a learner is someone who is contending who is stretching, who is working, who is engaging. It's, it's not simply just saying, oh, you know, I, I kind of believe that. It's a nice insurance policy, right? When I die, I got an insurance policy. Jesus gave me it, so I can just hold on to it. But I'm not really going to let it affect my, how I live. But see, it's designed to affect how we live. And I mean by that is it's going to challenge us. It's going to stretch us. It means we're going to have times when we struggle. But you know what? Struggle can be good. Because sometimes struggling, and I, I don't all of us fail. Who among us here has not failed with the Lord to live up to things that he's asking us to live up to? But, that, but to, to struggle sometimes is when we learn the most about God. It's, it's in the place of our brokenness and our pain sometimes that we find him. We understand grace. We understand how much we truly are loved. We understand that this wouldn't, have, I was, wouldn't be a struggle if I wasn't contending for something to move forward into. But if I wasn't trying to listen to God and honor him and, and trying to move forward and, and I'm trying to let go of things that are holding me back and I'm trying to, listen, I'm, what I'm saying is be encouraged if we're contending because it, it, it's part of being a learner is to practice, it's to be a practicer, it's to, it's to try, it's to go, it's to, it's to get up, it's to run, it's not just to sit back and be passive and, and put in my hour on the weekend, it's not that, it, it's for, so much more than that. It's designed to affect us, the choices we make, the words we speak, the way we love, the way we keep our commitments, what we do when the pressure is on, when everything in us wants to run, how we show up to things, how we, how we fall and get back up by the grace of God, how we learn how to live in his love, how we learn how to have a faith that is not flimsy and, and so easily pulled apart and torn, but it actually has strong fibers. It can endure a lot of stress. It can live, it can abide, it can grow, it can survive. See, this is what he's talking about, be a learner. Now, keeping all of that in mind, when Jesus begins, and, he say, and Jesus says, and that in, happens when you learn to let me live in you. 
Now, keeping that in mind, it's going to illuminate what we're about to look at. Because remember, up to this point, Jesus said things that were controversial, and this, the group was still buzzing about what he said about being the bread of heaven, bread of life, and, and, and how can you be? You're, you're the son of Mary. I mean, Joseph, I mean, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? But as controversial as the things that he said were, what he was about to say was going to be so intense, so radical, so revolutionary in some ways, so difficult to truly understand that it was going to shake even his very core followers, even those most committed to him, it was going to shake them and, and cause their, their legs to buckle because it, it, was, it was going to be a word that was going to be difficult and it's amazing to me. Well, look, let's just read it. It says here, verse 47, Jesus goes on. Let's just read it through fairly rapidly. He says this, I tell you the truth that anyone who believes, believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. And anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Listen to me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus says. And anyone who eats this bread, this bread, will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live. I tell you, it is my flesh. It is my body. It is me. Well, he makes this connection between Bread and his flesh. He's talking about bread and him, his body. And it, he's establishing this metaphor here, isn't he? Think about this. Early on in John 1, he says this, that the word, it, stopped, it introduces, John 1 opens up with these soaring words. In the beginning, you know, was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It's this big soaring statement. So then it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So it, it takes us and it says God comes into humanity. God enters into the human experience. God comes as the sun into our, into our world and changes everything. That's what we say. Now, you know what's interesting is we, we talk about, you know, Easter is when we celebrate his resurrection. We talk about the cross. But Christmas is another day that we often we, we, we recognize. It's the birth of Christ. And we sing a, a song, a hymn, a carol, a Christmas carol. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, you know? Talking about how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You know, this idea of the Lord coming silently into Bethlehem and God enters into the human experience and he comes, the sun is given. You know, right, this whole idea of, of his entrance coming in a way that very few noticed. But you know, I was thinking about the connection. I mean, look at it. Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. Do you know what the Bethlehem means? The place where he is born literally means house of bread. The, the, he, he came in to a town named Bethlehem, the house of bread, and now the one who was born in the house of bread is saying, I am the bread of life. And it's a connection that is being made. He's, it's, all, it's, it's, it's subtle, but it's all interwoven. It's fascinating. And to see it, and when we really appreciate it. Now, that's what Jesus says. However, they were not impressed with his statements. It says in verse 52, look at this. It says, then the people began arguing with each other about what did he mean. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. I mean, what kind of crazy talk is this? You can hear some of them saying, he's not advocating cannibalism, is he? I mean, what is this? What is he talking about? His words are disgusting. What's gotten into him? No, that can't be what he's saying. 
No, that's what he said. That's what he, I heard him say it. He, let him explain himself then, you know. And they, it says they argued amongst themselves about it. You know, it's interesting here because you would think, oh, okay, Jesus is going to softly calm the crowd down. Because after all, I mean, everybody's excited about him. They all want to follow him. And, and uh, you know, but behold the winnowing fork. I mean, watch what he does. I mean, he, instead of letting up, on the, letting up on the gas, Jesus just takes it and he just presses the pedal all the way down. And he says, well, let me tell you something more. And look what he does. It says, so Jesus again, and again, <laughs> so Jesus again said, I tell you this truth. Now watch what's about to happen because he is going to weave in and out of symbolism that they would have been familiar with as a people of, a people of God with a heritage that Israel had. And they understood sac- the sacrifice, sacrificial system. They understood Passover, the blood of the lamb. They understood the brokenness of the bread and the flesh. They got that. That was a part of their, their conversations. It was part of their world. They understood it, but they didn't quite get what Jesus was getting at because he's about to embark into figurative language, symbolic, but it has meaning. It's designed to connect, to get them thinking about a deeper thing that God is doing. That He's basically saying everything that was done in the old is now coming to fulfillment before your very eyes. All that has been anticipated in all these rules and in this bread and in this flesh and in this blood, the very cup that you hold that reminds you of the blood, the blood that was placed on the doorpost when you left Egypt, when the the lamb was slain, all of those things are designed to get you somewhere. And where it's supposed to get you is to me. That's what he says. Watch this. So Jesus said again, I tell you this truth, unless, and this is part, (laughs) unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. Now, can you imagine these words? You cannot have eternal life within you unless you fully digest me, as it were. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up at the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And I live because of the living Father who sent me. And in the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I tell you this, I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. And anyone who eats this bread will not die, as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna in the wilderness. But I'll tell you what, you will live forever. And he said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, that's that's what is there. And you got to understand, at this point, (laughs) we're told in verse, (laughs) I mean, the words are incredible. I mean, many in the audience, I mean, to many in that audience at that moment, and those words still rock us a little bit today, even knowing what transpires later. That the words seem so bizarre, so fantastic, so over the, the pale, so repulsive, so outside the realm of plausibility or sanity that for some he could no longer be viewed as credible. And it says in verse 60, look at what it says, that many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. And how can anyone actually accept what he's saying? And then leapfrog over the 66th verse, which we'll put up here. And don't get freaked out by the reference. Okay, okay. Um, it, says, <laughs> it says that at this point, at this point, many, I never forgot this verse, by the way, where it is. Uh, at this point, it says many of his disciples turned away in John 6, 66, turned away and they deserted him. They left. Sorry, that's too much. You know, we've got to draw a line somewhere. And this is it. And you, can, and you can see the core disciples. And by the way, it is, so, it is so divisive and so lacking so much qualification that his meta, metaphorical figurative words, which point to real truths, by the way, 
about his cross and about his suffering and about the brokenness of his body and about the blood that will be spilled and about the life that will come from it. All of those things are true. They're contained in there, but they, they are so figurative. It's hard, to, but they, it's hard, it was hard for people to digest. And so even his most, his core followers are wavering in this moment to such a degree that Jesus, we're told, turns to them. I'm going to talk about this on the week after Easter, but he turns to them and he says, Will you also go away? And that's when Peter, flawed man, capable of saying things that were like, Peter, why'd you say that? <laughs> but there were moments where he rose above the fray and a simple fisherman spoke truth that nobody else could quite say the way he said it. And he turned to his fellow friends he said, where? But he focused his words on the Lord. He says, Lord, you, where else are we going to go? We believe you have the words of eternal life. We may not get it, but we're with you. I love that. I love that. And that leads me to this, this kind of like final piece that I'm hoping we can sit with as we make our way to Easter. I just put it on the board with three quick points, quick thoughts. We get to decide things when we follow Jesus. One of the things we get to decide here is how much we're going to believe of what he claimed to be as the, as the answer to the deepest need of the human being. So we get to decide, listen, we get to decide how much we're going to believe. Whether we're going to believe it or not, we get to decide that. Is he the answer or not? I mean, if you think about it in this way, he's saying, look, I am the bread of heaven. I am the great essential. I am the, I'm not only the sustainer of life, the one that can nourish you at the core of your being, but I'm also the giver of life, the one who gives you life through my death. And he's saying, you, in, in a lot of ways, he's saying, look, I am the one that is going to be able to raise you up to the last day and give you life beyond this life. And of course, many were offended and would follow him no more. And it's almost like Jesus turns to his disciples and say, are you also, uh, do, do these words offend you? Well, Lord, you, you, it's almost like I hear the disciples going, you know, why'd you have to go and thin out the crowd for? I mean... <laughs> This was everything we wanted. They were all excited. They wanted to make you king. You know, it's kind of why we signed on. We believe. Why did you do that? Why do you have to say things like that? They were with us. They wanted you to do it. They believed in you. Jesus said, but they didn't. They, it, it, Jesus is like Jesus says, you know what, though? They're missing the point. And at the core of this thing is a, is a whole other story. It's not about me performing. It's about me giving my life so this world may live. Listen, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever would believe upon him would not die, but live at the gift of life. And, and, and you look at it, and we get to decide. We get to decide who Jesus is going to be to us. Closely, you know, is he, is he the savior? Is he just a teacher? But all, more than that, more than that, the son of God come. But secondly, we get to decide something else. We get to decide what our response is going to be. We get to decide how we're going to respond to his words when they're hard to embrace. And this has become very apparent, is that there are times when Jesus will say things, and they're not always easy. There are times when the words of Christ will challenge us and may, maybe even cut against the grain of sensibility. And it will strike us and force us to decide what he really means to us. And we begin to wrestle with the fact that what kind of a... 
uh, one, do I even want to be a believer and follower? And two, what kind of believer and follower am I going to be? Because the question is this, what happens when it's not convenient and it's not popular? And it costs me something. And that's what the disciples were sitting with. It was like, don't go, don't go, don't go. They're all going, Lord. They're leaving. You, why? why? This, is no, this is unnecessary. You could have done it different. They would have followed. See, this is the whole idea. And Jesus says, you know what? You get to decide. What are you going to do? You going to go to? Or are you going to stay? What are you going to do? You going to leave too? I mean, it's like, you don't, get what I, you don't like what I'm saying? You don't get what I'm saying? What are you going to do? And at the core was, hey, that's why we get to, see, we get to decide. Well, and you think about this. Easter runs through the cross. It really does. You can't get to Easter without the cross. And the cross was a lonely, God-forsaken place. I mean, no one stood with Jesus. No one did. At the end of the day, there was not one person who stood with him. Listen, even his father, he felt forsaken of his father even. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he bears the sin of this world. He feels separation for the first time as a son. Every one of his disciples who he invested in, his, his team, scattered, running for their lives. One of them sold, 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 sold him off. The other one denies him three times. All the loyal talk out the window when enough pressure was applied in the right way. It's like everybody else gone, by himself, alone, diminished, beaten, blood. We talk about it. We sing, we sing about it. It happens. What are you going to do? You know, you look at that moment and you go, wow, it would have been so easy for Jesus to, to, uh, to abort what he was committed to doing, but he wouldn't do it. He, he follows all the way, and we, we rejoice because of it, because, because of his loyalty to his, his father's call, and he did it. He went all the way, and that leads us to this, this final piece, which is this. We, too, as his followers, will get to decide how loyal we are going to be. And, and hear me out when I say this. What happens when he disappoints us? What happens when um, he says words that, that, that that's not what, we, what are you doing? Well, we also walk away. Remember, the Lord calls us to follow him come what may. And sometimes, listen, sometimes it means following him into answers that are hard to understand. Hear me out. Sometimes following him means following him into answers that are hard to understand. Sometimes it means following him into questions into which no answer is sufficient on this side of eternity. We want to say, why, God, explain yourself. And he says, I cannot give you that answer, but I give you me. I give you everything about who I am. I give you myself. I am broken for you. I am abandoned for you. I have felt your loneliness. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to be forsaken. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to, to break. I know what it's like to die. I know. I know. And, then, and so sometimes it's going to mean that we have to also listen be willing to walk with him up a hill with a cross attached to our back, and that cross is sometimes called unfairness and suffering. And sometimes following Jesus means that we're going to get a chance to also sometimes negotiate what it means to be abandoned, forsaken, or maybe even feel very lonely and misunderstood, taken for granted, um, unremembered. 
what will we do? I'm going to tell you something. One thing we know is that death, death sometimes it actually means walking in the place of death because the cross was a place of death. But death was not the final word of it, thank the Lord. Death was not the final word. The final word was life. The cross was not the end of the story. The end of the story is an empty tomb. And that tells us something great, doesn't it? It means that through it all, the love of God prevails. And no one can ever separate us from that love. That's part of what we celebrate here. No one, not ever, never, ever. As long as we are willing to follow, even feebly, and I have followed him feebly at times, he will not reject us. He'd take us. He'd take us. Flaws, warts, sins, and all. That's the love of God for you and me. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a God. Oh, what a gift. When we close the service, the song that we're closing with is called Only the Love of God. It's a song I've been wanting to do for really a couple of months. I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to do this song on, on the weekend right before Easter. And part of this song talks about no matter who we are, how we have lived this far, he gave us another chance as he stretched out his hands to bear the sin of man, to remember them no more. Now I know for sure this kind of love this, that's unexplainable, unsearchable, unspeakable, immeasurable, nothing's more powerful, as strong as the love of God. And I love that. I love that we are loved. And so, Lord, I thank you. I, I praise you. I, I'm excited about about where we're, where we're going. I thank you so much for who you are and, and how you gave yourself for us, Lord. And I know there are times when it's hard to understand and things don't always make sense. But Lord, I pray that we would have a faith that is growing and strong and is not, is not so fragile that it cannot endure even the questioning places of life. I thank you, Lord, that you gave yourself for us. You, you may not always give us all the answers because some of those answers will never make sense to us anyway, Lord. But what you give is you give yourself. You gave us yourself, and we can know you in your brokenness, and we can find life in you. And what a gift, what a blessing, what a hope. We live as a people just anchored in hope. Hopefulness is our song. It sits with us in the morning hour. It calls to us in the desperate place. It's the hope of God that says the cross is not the end. The empty tomb is, and because I live, you will live also. I thank you, Lord, for that blessed hope. We're not an accident. We're not a cosmic nothing. We're people created in your image, loved by you. And you've given us a hope and a future. Teach us your ways, Lord. Help us to walk in them. Help us to live as people immersed in the love of God. So just pray for the closing moments, Lord, the closing psalm, the closing prayer, the closing time of giving as we honor you as a people together in this way. May you be honored in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.